You know when Bugs Bunny reaches into his pocket and pulls out a huge hammer? Believe it or not, there's a name for that magical place he gets it from, and it's called Hammerspace. We have a representative today from a company called Hammerspace that's going to talk about their global file system and how it's just as magical. Hi, and welcome to Backup Central's Restored All Podcast. I'm your host, W. Curtis Preston, a.k.a. Mr. Backup, and I have with me my pick-and-pull analyst, Prasanna Maliandi. How's it going, Prasanna? I'm good, Curtis. Unfortunately, I'm not doing a great job in helping you, right? Just given the number of times that you sort of struck out. Yeah, I, I, um, I still want a part or two that I can only get from a about 2,000... 12 to 2014 Prius and uh, the silver Prius, right? I want <laughs> it's a very specific uh, subset. And the thing is, you know, with the pick and pulls, as you know, it's like super cheap, right? Yep. The, if you if you have the wherewithal to go and pull apart off the car yourself, you save tons, right? Yep. I mean, besides the fact that it's a used part, it's like, I don't know, a fourth of the price than, than a normal part. Um, and, um, so, but I have to say, <laughs> everyone has the my, same thought as you. What's that? <laughs> that you <laughs> oh, go to the pick and pull, it's cheap, but yeah. the supply is limited. And yeah. And, and the, and I ha and the, the company that I use LKQ pick your part, not a sponsor. Um, <laughs> they, they have a really good system for notifying me with when any, you know, uh, pick and pull yard within whatever radius I specify has the car that I'm looking for. And then I have to go like right away because the Prius is popular and it's either get there like that day or you get there and you know, there's not going to be much left. But so I, I had another, I had another, uh, failed run, uh, to pick and pull down in Chula Vista, <clears throat> which is about a 45 minute drive, but you know, not a big deal. Yeah. But now, I'm you're sure here to some... counsel me on that. <laughs> well, and I'm sure some listeners are like, oh, why don't you just get like a red color Prius door? They don't understand how expensive it is. To yeah, they, yeah paint. they don't. They just don't clearly. Yeah. Uh, Body work and paint is insanely expensive to do it. It's right. ridiculous. Yeah. This all started because I had a minor scratch on the door, a minor dent on the door, and they wanted $2,500 to fix that. So I'm like, I can get a used door from a pick and pull place for like 70 bucks. <laughs> so uh, anyway anyway we could talk about that for a while but i am once again excited to have a longtime friend on the podcast she has been in the data protection space for a long time as well in fact i got to know her in one of her previous lives at Spectrologic. They've been on the podcast a couple of times, as you guys know. She's a fascinating person, both from a technical standpoint and also this other very interesting aspect of her personality that she really likes large animals. We're going <laughs> to we're gonna talk about that because it's a fascinating part of her. Uh, she is now the Senior Vice President of Marketing at <coughs> Hammerspace, a global file system provider. Welcome to the podcast. Molly Presley. 
Oh, thank you so much for having me, Curtis. I have to say, um, Curtis is also a colorful personality. I've known him long enough to know that (laughs) to be very true. And without him knowing I'm going to bring this up, I will mention that I remember the very first time I met Curtis was at Storage Networking World. So those of you who've been around for a while, S&W was a thing, um, both from a work as well as a personal perspective. So when I first met Curtis at S&W, he was dressed like a clown. And we were sitting in the after hours and it wasn't just like a clown. It was, I believe a net backup, or it was actually maybe a backup exec seven launch or something. And mm-hmm. they actually offered to do Halloween costumes for everyone. And Curtis chose to be a very flamboyant oh. clown. So it absolutely stuck. You remember memory. that. Yeah. Are there pictures was... of this event? <laughs> there must be somewhere. <laughs> yeah. No yeah. That there are. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. That was, yeah, that was a semantic dinner events like we were mm-hmm. we, i guess we were both guests uh i of think that we're guests dinner. and it was on halloween because it was the end of yeah. october yeah we tried to make right on keeping us away from home on halloween by making it a dress-up event <laughs> yeah and uh i do i do now i was when you first said me dressed up as a clown i'm like i think she's thinking about somebody else and then all of a sudden i'm like oh <laughs> no the it semantic was dinner. <laughs> yes the semantic dinner uh where i was dressed up as a clown um yeah that was that was something uh talk to us about the animals in your life molly well yeah as curtis has mentioned i have a particular interest in large animals and this is both from having them cruising around my home with a few um very large 200 pound great danes that have at one point i had three of them at once in a very small Seattle apartment downtown. So we were oh my <laughs> tasked through COVID with walking 600 pounds of dog um, without the apartment dog walk areas in downtown Seattle. So everyone, of course, knew who we were in the area. Um, we have Clydesdales and then a particular interest in elephant protection and conservation. So in Asia and Africa, a lot of holidays spent um, tending to cleaning up after large elephants as well. I like how you just casually mentioned that you have Clydesdales. Like, <laughs> yeah. It was like a parenthetical. Yeah. Oh, and we have a couple of Clydesdales. <laughs> of course, of course. Yes. Um, but you went from like small and... to large to larger. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and, and you live and you live in uh, Colorado, right? Or you know? I do now. You... Yeah, I do now. Okay. I moved back from okay. Seattle a bit ago. Right. And um, what's, what's it like uh, caring for, you know, animals like that that are just that large? You know, they tend to be the classic saying, the gentle giant tends to be true. They're very kind, loving, good animals, but everything's just harder. You have to have bigger vehicles, bigger bags of food, bigger bags of cleanup gear. There tends to be just everything is a little bit more complicated as far as how, I mean, just think about how do you get around 600 pounds of dog and we ended up dedicating a minivan with no seats in the back to that. (laughs) Wow. Um, Yeah, I guess that makes sense, right? Yeah. And you have to be the type of person who doesn't mind being asked, in fact, enjoys being asked about them and people want to pet them and know about caring for them. Or do you have a saddle for your dog? Or do you really ride your Clydesdales? Those kinds of questions, because people are, you know, truly interested, even though you may have heard the question before a few times. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, there are horse people, but it's just Clydesdales. You just don't you don't see Clydesdales very often unless you're watching beer commercials, right? No, you I mean, don't. You, so people are surprised see them quite to see often. you. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, people are surprised to see you on a trail ride with the little quarter horse and the little Arabian goes by and then the big old Clydesdale comes clumping along with his crew and, you know, his back stands over six feet tall. And people are like, what? I didn't even know you could ride a Clydesdale. I had no idea. This is incredible. Why would, so how do you why get up they... on that? Steps. Okay. And they, they actually make steps, mounting block type things to get onto. But even then, when you use the ones that you would use for your traditional sized horses, quite a jump to go from <laughs> the steps to the back of the horse. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this, uh, Molly, but I, when, when my kids were little, they, they wanted to do some horseback riding, right? And so we went to one of these places. It's actually on base. I'm, I'm just south of Camp Pendleton in mm. San Diego. And they had a trail ride, you know, uh, set up where you could go and ride these horses. And, and we, we came up, me, my wife had zero interest in getting up. She, she actually has, she has a, a thing that happened to her when she was a teenager that like a horse ran away with her and she's like, I'm not ever getting on a horse again. But anyway, so, so it was just me and the two kids and one of which was like really little. And, um, we walked up and, and, and I hear the, the lady that's leading this thing say something along the, you know, uh, better get Bessie. And, uh, and I was like, Oh, it's cute. They got like a small horse for, for my little one. No, they weren't talking about my little one. <laughs> There was a special horse just for me, which is basically like Clydesdale size. They're like, yeah, yeah, that's your horse over there. That that, that gentle giant. I was like, that's just that's just harsh. But yeah, anyway. So I just, you know, I, whenever I talk about you, it's just one of the things I find most fascinating about you, <laughs> even though you, you are, you are like, you know, a nerd's nerd. I mean, you, you, I love how much you're into the technology and, you know, how good you are at your job. I mean, we've, we've talked for years about, you know, multiple of your previous employers. Um, obviously, you know, the, I, I spent so many years talking to you about Spectra. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Great and, company. You know, yeah, great company, and uh, and now you're you're close to them again. Um, uh, what do you call it, uh, geographically speaking? I am but, just at uh, the road now. You can see all my old friends and probably right, the folks who right. had as guests on the show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, we actually had them on. They had a, as I'm sure you're aware, they had a ransomware attack. Um, they did, and, and they yeah. recovered successfully. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So we have Tony. That was a, yeah, to, yeah. Tony talked about that. That was great. Yeah, um, good on them. I, Nathan's yeah, always been good about using his own company as an example of their technology. And I will insert our standard disclaimer. Uh, Persona and I work for different companies. He works for Zoom. I work for Druva. And this is not a podcast of either company. And the opinions that you hear are all Personas. And if you like what you hear or are you know watching this, by the way, if, you, if, you, if you're listening and you want to watch, you can go to BackupCentral.com. We have the video version of it over there. And um, if you if you like what you see or hear, then, you know, go rate us at ratethispodcast.com slash restore. And if you want to join the conversation, just, you know, give me a holler at WC Preston on Twitter or W Curtis Preston at Gmail. And we cover all manner of topics, uh, backup, you know, storage, archive, protection, storage. Uh, said that. What? <laughs> you already said that. Oh, did I say Did I say storage twice? Yep. Yeah, well, that, I made a copy. Security. I made a copy. <laughs> <laughs>
I just, I just can't help but make a copy of the company that you work at now. How long have you been at Hammerspace? About six months now. Okay. I referred to them as a global file system provider, but I don't think that it does justice. So why don't we, before we sort of say what, what, what it is, how about you tell us what problem do you think Hammerspace was designed to, to solve? Yeah, that's always a better place to start. And we were designed to solve the problem of kind of using industry terms, decentralized environments. So you think about what's happened with our industry from first just an infrastructure perspective. It used to be all the data sat in one server. Then we started to maybe have multiple multiple clusters in the lab. Then we started to have some clouds. And your data became decentralized or dispersed into many places. And that idea of now I have an application or a data scientist or somebody who wants to take advantage of my data and it's all decentralized in multiple places, we make it easy for that computer or human or application who wants to use data that's spread in many locations to work with it as a single data set. And then along with that, you think about the other decentralization which has occurred is where human beings are living. And so people are working remotely applications may be sitting in multiple clouds. And so where the things are that need to use the data are also distributed. And so Hammerspace makes it very easy, even if your data is geographically far from you over networking and latency that would make it difficult to access, we overcome that that barrier. So we solve the problem of making data accessible that is decentralized um, to remote users and remote applications. Now, are you, when you talk about making data available, is it sort of intended for like the primary use case, like someone's building an application and the data for the application might be stored across like different clouds with Hammerspace being that interface? Or is it more intended for data is already being stored today in various spots and Hammerspace sort of gives people who need to consume that data visibility in a sort of centralized way or both? It's honestly a little bit of both. I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one of our partners is Snowflake, and I think most people who would listen to this show would know who Snowflake is. But Snowflake primarily works with data that's already stored in the Snowflake cloud. However, they've built an enormous amount of inter- intelligence in the applications and the processing and analytics which Snowflake can provide. So let's just say that you wanted to use the Snowflake applications Um, but your data didn't live in the Snowflake cloud, we could bridge that gap and make the data still live where it was created, but easily accessible to the Snowflake applications. So there is that application piece, but there's also the visibility for the human being, um, whether it's an AI engine or it's actually like a genomics researcher working on looking at COVID variants, um, easier ability to access data sets that are dispersed over multiple places. So one of our customers... Um, if you think about um, the research around COVID, there's variants coming out and different countries have their different data around which variants they have, how quickly is it spreading, is there a new variant? And ideally, you would look at all that data together instead of you know, Ethiopia looking at it separately from South Africa. And this is an African um, initiative that's underway right now is to bring all those data sets together with Hammerspace to make it easier to look at larger populations of data together instead of isolating the data yeah. sets. So it can be the person too. Yeah. And I guess in the case of the COVID example you brought up, the research, it's, I guess another method people could do today is 
try transferring and synchronizing data manually across all these various sources, totally like moving the data, which is painful and probably not very practical either. Yeah, I, I mean, that's exactly <laughs> it. So of course, it's been solved somehow today, but it's been expensive and inefficient. So maybe you've now got two or three or four copies of data, which you have to pay for storing two or three or four copies of the same data. You have maybe ingest and egress charges around moving it between clouds, networking issues, um, and then just the human factor of an IT person making scripts to move data around. And then you try to figure out what's the master copy, who has it, do I have all the data or not? So it's being solved, but not very elegantly today. And this is an elegant automated software driven solution. In our career, we are often fighting the laws of physics. And once again, that's kind of what you're doing. You're trying to you're trying to defy the laws of physics. I think one way you might look at that is um, there are lots of different ways people have addressed trying to move data around, make data accessible. And even in our space, what is a global file system or a global namespace? It's a bit confusing. People take different approaches. But the thing that I think is super important to think about is, um, you know, for to do data, data discovery, the more data you have access to, the better. So Hammerspace really tries to solve the problem of, you know, breaking down the storage silo, making it so you can look at all of your data together in one view. That would be a global namespace. And then to solve that latency problem, you, we don't move the data around. The data stays put. And so you were talking about physics. And it's funny. It's something okay. I talk about with our CEO pretty regularly that we actually don't believe the concept of data gravity is valid anymore with the Hammerspace technology because you no longer have to move the compute to the data. We will let the data stay put and our, everyone interacts with metadata instead of data. So metadata is light. You know, for every petabyte of data, you know, you maybe have a couple hundred megabytes of metadata, whatever it is. And you can make multiple copies of the metadata. You can easily move that to a new location, a new application to solve the latency issue but the data can just stay put. So all of a sudden, this idea of, are we trying to overcome physics and this concept of, is there data gravity and all of that? We're trying to make it where really create your data where you want to and then use it where you want to. And we'll use smart software so you can interact with it without expense and everything else that has become kind of almost a truth in our industry. But in the end, you eventually will be pulling the data of some sort when you're reading or accessing, if that's what your application needs. It's just because, correct me if I'm wrong, because you're sort of processed things via the metadata, which resides close to you, right? So you deal with the latency issue. It helps you filter down what in the end you need to access. So you don't that's need to right. necessarily pull all the data, just the select data you need. That's right. And then we, of course, take care of interesting technologies that exist today and you know, using object storage in the cloud to move things around efficiently and low cost, object store to object store, even though what we present is a file system, but we use the back end of smart object stores to move things around efficiently when it's needed, but we only move what we need to. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm trying to fathom how that works. <laughs> Obviously I get the difference between metadata and data. I'm trying to understand like if you could give me an example of an application that's first just using the metadata to make a decision and then later accessing the data, I guess maybe because I spend so much of my time in the, in the backup space and we're, you know, 
I mean, yeah, obviously metadata is important, but the data is like, we're all about the data. So and maybe we, yeah, maybe ahead. we can expand on that COVID example from the beginning if, and show that if that works, Molly. Yeah, we can definitely talk about that. So if you go back to the COVID example that we were talking about, and you're looking at variants of different, um, you know, generations and whatnot that's occurring within COVID, a great example would be in a lot of cases, what organizations need to do is keep their data set in country for maybe compliance, patient rate care regulations, and they need to leave it in place. But they want to be able to have a view to an analytics application through metadata of the, the amount of test results that have occurred, maybe specific results, but they don't need the entire data set. So we use something called objective-based policies. And so this is getting super like nerding out and I'm not going to nerd out on you, but um, you would set an objective saying, really my we, objective- we, we love people that nerd out, Molly, it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so my objective as the data administrator of this organization is to be able to look at the number of tests and the number of variants that are occurring and all the rest of the data around that's being collected which could be location, um, you know, whatever, ethnicity, gender, that stuff doesn't matter to me. So they would only interact with the metadata that's associated with their objectives and pull in if they need to move data, they would only move the parts that's relevant to that objective. So there's, and this is all automated and set through the Hammerspace interfaces so that you can say, these are the bits I care about. I'm not going to get a human involved with it. And then you can also set rules about you can move my data, but only to this country and not that country. So you can manage your compliance. There's a lot of different things that occur within an objective that helps to automate all of this. Interesting. And and so like when you, when you say those, the data rules, if you can move my data, but only here. Um, so when someone is accessing the data, are you a portal through which they're accessing your data or is it just sort of giving something we're, pointers? Yeah, we're actually the namespace. We're a network share, an NFS mount point, an SMB mount point that all the users, so if the three of us were using Hammerspace technology, we would all see the exact same folder structure, director structure. As each of us made changes, we'd see each other's changes, but that would be done on a single um we would be interacting with the metadata and that's what we would be presenting the directory tree. So it is a NAS. It's just a NAS that has storage environments that can be in many places. Interesting. So I'm going to give you another example that sometimes will, so the fastest adoption that we've had of our environment is in visual effects studios. And this is environments where, again, you think about that what happened with COVID and nobody was flying actors to have physical shoots of film because they're worried about travel and proximity and all its social distancing. So visual effects and animation was how a lot of the entertainment and production films were done. So the need for animation and visual effects went up dramatically, like orders of magnitude. And in the meantime, the artists were scattering to all over where they wanted to live, where their families lived, and they were no longer close to the studios. And so what they have done is used Hammerspace as the way to um, make it easy to spin up a new artist. So a new artist could be in Africa or India or wherever they happen to be living. You give them access to the global namespace and they instantly can see what is all the content, all the clips, 
they aren't actually moving them. They are making copies of the video close and they're just viewing, okay, I have um, Moana and I have this Netflix show, depending on who the studio is. And I can see, okay, here's all the content. My job is only to edit um, the motion of the faces in this particular clip of film. So I'm just going to move that one clip. The rest of the film can stay wherever it is and they can work on that animation. And then as they do their work, this metadata is being synchronized. So if another artist says, oh, I thought I was supposed to be working on the animation of that face, they can see what the other person is doing and not step on each other or later have to figure out how do I merge changes, things like that. So it's it's really helped ramp up remote artists working on content that's massive and you can't move around easily. And so they can just work on the clips and segments that they want to. And this is all done integrated with their tools. So with Autodesk, ShotGrid and Teradici, their virtual studio tools. So there's a lot of tools that it's integrated with to make it really easy that they're using their own tools and this kind of data orchestration in the background is automated. I think that's interesting. I feel a lot of storage vendors tend to sort of say, hey, here's an NFS mount point or an SMB mount point, go at it, versus kind of what uh, Hammerspace is doing is giving you that automation, those policy management integration into the consumers or the end users tools rather than just saying, hey, here's a point, go for it. Yeah, I, I really think this is just the next generation of how storage and data management and hybrid cloud will work. And I've worked in all of these types of companies. And I know this is a thing that customers, and I've been using the term, the missing link in what customers expect will work when they go to a hybrid cloud versus how it actually works. So if you think about the technologies that exist today, Sure, you can run a NAS instance of any of the popular NAS vendors in the cloud and in the data center, but they're separate silos of data. So you as a user would still have to say, hmm, okay, where am I going to put my data? Where is the data I created before? How do I make that available to someone else? And it's then a matter of opening a ticket with IT and say, okay, now Curtis needs access to this share and Let's open up a share and set up the IP networking for him to do that and the DNS servers and everything. It's very manual. The way Hammerspace handles it is you just set up both of you with access to our NFS share, let's say the Hammerspace share. And no matter where the data is stored, if Curtis says you can have access to it, um, he just sets that permission and ta-da, you, you have access to it. There's no IT involved. There's no data silos where you're saying, gosh, I don't know what's in Curtis's share. I only know what's in mine. How would I ever know? We, we overcome that so you can see the data that's being created and collaborated on by many data users. And, you know, most environments need that. It's not designed for where you want your own personal information held to yourself. It's environments that are collaborative and are doing research or that type of thing. Yeah, I, I will say I, I understood the second example a lot better than the first one. So that's good. So that's good. Um, it, it's something that, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time in and around the, the media and, and entertainment space. Mm -hmm. I've worked with companies trying to back up that stuff, right? Um, because one of the problems that I remember I was working with, the, the folks that were making Shrek 2 back when that was new, and their problem was each animator needed the entire set of data. Exactly. At least they needed it to look like they had the entire set of data in order to select which backgrounds they wanted to, to use. And um, that was an interesting problem to solve. And it sounds like that this would, this would help to solve that problem. 
Yeah, um, it, it does very much. Um, and that kind of problem occurs when you think about a studio, maybe that advertises the same film in different countries and they have to localize a look and feel or the clips they'll carry, carry for an advertisement in Japan may be different than in America, that type of thing. It works beautifully for that type of solution. It's just overall, it's become difficult as we have so many technologies that come out. One's a little better or a little different or has a little functionality than another in the storage space. And you need those differences. You need the fast performance of pure storage or vast data, or you need the hybrid cloud um, image that Cumulo has, or you know whatever it is, as you go through the different technologies and you bought something for those reasons, and yet your users don't have access to all the different storage vendors and need to know what data exists. So having a namespace that sits above it, that makes it so IT can have the performance or capacity or security that they need in their storage systems. And that doesn't limit a user from having visibility to all of the data. It's really kind of a simple way to think about it. And I know you talked about some of the features that these individual storage vendors have. I know Hammerspace brings its own innovative features, but for those other storage vendors, do things sort of get least common denominator, if you will, right, in terms of the features functionality of those underlying storage arrays? Or is Hammerspace still able to allow those storage arrays to bring their innovative features, functionality, and Hammerspace leverages or has its own capabilities on top? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, so when you take, let's say you assimilate the metadata out of your NetApp and your BAST and whatever it is. Um, at that point, you're using the features in Hammerspace so they can be done at a global level. So if you want to set that, you know, a specific replication functionality or if you want to be able to have ransomware policies put in place, um, if you want to have encryption set, you can do that at a global level so you don't have the risk of, oh, gosh, I'm encrypting on this <laughs> environment and not this one or um, that type of thing. So we take over the management at that level. So really, in the end, the other storage systems become capacity and performance, um, and the features are handled at a global level within Hammerspace. Gotcha. By the way, uh, while researching Hammerspace, the company, I come, I came across the, uh, I, what I'm absolutely sure is the origin of, you know, why you would name the company that, and this, this idea of a, uh, so I, I just found the, the Hammerspace Wikipedia page and the, you know, they say a fan envisioned extra-dimensional, instantly accessible storage area in fiction. Uh, and it, it's used to describe exactly. how, how characters can seemingly, out of thin air, make objects appear. That's where the name came from, is that idea of, you know, Bugs Bunny has the appearance of very small pockets and yet can pull a massive hammer out of his pocket and bonk his bow on the head. Um, hammer space is that extra dimension of what appears small, you can actually pull this massive amount of data out of. So it's that metadata kind of analogy. I will ask one very obvious question. I was going to wait for your obvious one. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> does this beautiful multidimensional <laughs> storage space uh, impact how I would back up the data? Because in the end, that is you know one of the things that we care about. It definitely could. Backup is one of those things that I think most storage vendors have not tried to take on too much. Of course, we have data protection. We have snapshots and replication and all those types of things. But in the end, if you were setting up a Druva backup policy, 
you would point it at the Hammerspace namespace and set it just the way you always have. Um, you know, whatever your requirements are, your retention, you, your network shares, if you're used to backing up NFS, you represent NFS. So the process is the same. You just would do it at the Hammerspace level instead of having backup policies set for each individual storage silo within the Hammerspace environment. And so okay. it's easier if you think about it, that you can only set the policies once and it covers all of your data. Um, but it, you know, it does require just in, it's integrating with Hammerspace file shares instead. And I'm guessing because backup, you kind of need access to everything. Your policies might be slightly different, right? For someone trying to do a backup or like a tool trying to do a backup than like a normal user, right? Yeah, there's a lot of access optionality built mm -hmm. in, you know, super user access to everything versus you as a user only are allowed to access a certain thing for a certain amount of time. And of course, a backup environment would need access at a massive level, but you know, you can set it just as read, not write, those types of things, which often can be a best practice. You mentioned ransomware. I know that's a hot topic these days. Could you talk about how Hammerspace protects you, prevents, or how you handle ransomware situations? <clears throat> yeah, definitely. I think anybody who's in any sort of data management or data storage environment needs to be thinking about ransomware as a problem obviously that is top of mind for many companies, um, well, for every company. And so if you think about a global data environment, which is what we call it, so you create this global data environment, which incorporates all of your data, and you could think kind of a ransomware person kind of putting their fingers together and going, ooh, I want access to that thing. <laughs> um, certainly there's multiple layers of what we have built into the environment as far as access protections, um, immutable snapshots, um, we keep because we have this very intelligent metadata layer, we actually have the ability to do undelete. So at an administrative level, even if somebody did maliciously delete data, um, we can do an undelete, which is housed in a location, you know, a different metadata environment that they can't touch. So there's, there's quite a few pieces. If you think about the different layers of access, encryption, um, taking of the data, things like that, that are built into the environment. Um, I wouldn't say that we're a ransomware company. I think all of our technologies need to do things to help protect against ransomware. There may be cases where somebody would go partner with a company's job is to protect against ransomware. Um, and of course we would integrate with that, but there's several levels of controls and we've had customers, you know, who know they've had, are undergoing attacks. It's very common, you know, that customers know that they've seen, they see them happening almost daily. I think we all know that and they can protect against them. That is a perfect application for the metadata only access, right? Mm -hmm. So if you have a SIM SOAR tool that's monitoring what's happening with the metadata, changes to the files would exactly. react, would would result in changes in the metadata, right? And you being able to exactly. provide access to just the metadata without all the data, um, that sounds like a perfect application for your tool as well. Exactly. Yeah. Another example Makes I can think of is, especially with multi-cloud, right? People might be choosing different clouds for cost reasons or feature mm -hmm. reasons, and they may not be experts at it, but with Hammerspace, right, you could kind of give them that seamless interface across the cloud exactly. as well. Exactly. Cool. Well, Molly, I'm glad we had you on. Thanks for joining us. Really interesting conversation. <laughs> I've yeah, known you for I a like long that. time, Curtis. Prasanna's a smart, fun <laughs> podcaster as well. He's a, he's a great co-host. I am very lucky to have him. So thanks, thanks, Prasanna. 
to you, Curtis. Molly, it was a pleasure to meet you. <laughs> thanks for having me. And thanks again to our listeners. You know, you are, are why we do this after all. Well, that and we're bored. But um, <laughs> so, so we thank you for listening. And remember <laughs> to subscribe so that you can restore it all. <laughs>